Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Hello, and welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Charlotte Bond. I'm Lucy Hounsom. And I'm Egan Lee. Romance has always been big business, and these days there are plenty of subgenres. Historical, medical, steamy, sweet, and of course, paranormal. However, despite its popularity, there's still some snobbery around this genre, often classed as women's fiction, which can be sneered at by critics and even creative writing teachers. But if it is so terrible, then just why does it sell so well? And are the female characters in such books still the swooning, bodice-ripping heroines of the Barbara Cartland's days? Or have we moved on? This episode, we are joined by paranormal romance writer Alice James to talk about her Lavington Windsor series, which charts the adventures of part-time estate agent, part-time necromancer, Tony Lavington. Alice, thank you so much for joining us. Please tell our listeners a little bit about yourselves and your books. Thank you. Yes, I'm Alice James and my paranormal romance series, The Lavington Windsor Mysteries, they are actually my first ever books. So I'm really super excited to come here and talk about them. They are somewhat of a romance, somewhat of a murder mystery series, but they fit around Tony, who's a necromancer at night, an estate agent in the day, never has enough money, uh, makes terrible decisions, but solves murders by raising corpses from the dead so that her brother, who is a cop, can find out who murdered them. So there's lots of different subgenres going on in them, and I really um, think that they sit very squarely in the paranormal romance bracket, but they've also got Know, elements of lots of other things going on there and I'm really blathering on sorry <laughs> we we like guests who blather on it is absolutely fine <laughs> and to be honest there's there's a lot to unpack in your books because you're on book three now aren't you oh I'm on book three that one's just come out and my um agent and I have just finished edits to book four so yeah Tony has so many more mistakes to make <laughs> so many more so- murders to solve Uh, So many more poor decisions to make about her love life and really her happy ending, which, you know, it's a romance book. She's got to have one, but it's certainly looking like it's still fairly far over the horizon right now. Well, she's got like little happy endings, like little shots of vodka for each one. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, she has some little shots. Yeah, and I mean, not to bring the tone down immediately, but she has uh, other kinds of happy endings fairly often just saying in every book so i mean there's lots of romance books out there and i listed just some of the subgenres. like there's there's masses i could have had a whole episode just reading out subgenres of, of romance and um, but paranormal romance in particular has become really incredibly popular and i wondered if you knew why that might be and what it is about vampires and werewolves and all that kind of stuff that makes us go weak at the knees it's eternal isn't it it's um, you look at you look at films, you look at bookshelves, vampires, werewolves, they're always the hot ones. And I think partly it's because it reinforces our sense of uniqueness because everyone feels they're unique. Everyone feels they're totally different from the people around them in some way. That's probably even more so for your average fantasy reader. We really 
often are in a minority, even amongst our close friends. And I think it's one of the reasons we like conventions so much, because you can find other members of your tribe there. But I think the allure of vampires and werewolves is that, yes, they are these outcasts, these dark creatures. And we as readers can look at them and say, kind of, I'm not really like other people, and neither are you. We're outcasts in our own way. So there's this feeling of they're kind of like us by being very different. And I think there's also the allure of forbidden in there as well, which is constantly attractive. You know, don't drink, don't get a tattoo, don't you dare date werewolves. How would you even think about giving your bud to a vampire? You know, you can strap onto that unhealthy and rather misogynistic appeal, the whole true love will reform them trope. You know, he's bad for everyone, but he'll love me. He's a killer, but for me, he'll change. I mean, it's not exactly healthy, but it's very pervasive. It's quite misogynistic, you know, the idea that all he needs is the love of a good woman. But it is very much something that people fit into the um, the romance genre. And I think we've come a, a little made a little bit of progress. Your bad boy always doesn't have to be male. We you know, have some bad girls these days. And I think maybe there's also the appeal of power. Your vampire, your wolf, they have physical power and physical strength, but they also some often have other powers that can be mental or arcane or like superhero-like in nature. So that there, there are lots of different things that come in one usually extremely handsome package. And I think... That's why one. That's, those are some of the reasons the appeal is so constant. So, I have been rewatching the classic '90s sitcom, uh, <laughs> The Nanny. Um, you know, just completely off the wall here. With Van Drescher in it. Yes, yes, it is. <laughs> <Thank> God. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, Very but nice. gr- great show. Anyway, but it just, when we were talking about, you know, the appeal of some of these paranormal romances, especially vampires, I was just thinking about, you know, there's an obsession that Fran has in the show about, you know, staying young and there's the constant jokes about, oh, well, you know, I'm going to be 30 for 10 years, you know, and (laughs) this sort of thing. And it just made me think about, well, maybe we like these, eternally youthful male vampires as a kind of reflection of this desire that supposedly women more than men, although I'm not sure that's true, but supposedly societally we have, you know, maybe we'd drawn to that idea that maybe we could be young forever too. We could keep our beauty and, and it's that kind of, the lure of, of the the thing that we can't have that we really want. And I think that's just another reflection of the sort of misogyny in classic romance, that you want the man for something he can give you, this very one-dimensional transactional nature to your typical romance, that the woman gives her self but the man gives things. So here, here, he's not just giving power or money or beauty. He's also giving potentially eternal life. It's annoying, but I think that's also part of it. So let's talk necromancy. I love a necromancer. I love books about necromancy. I love 
anime series about necromancy. I will never get tired of talking about necromancy. Um, that's probably because I'm weird, but it's also really cool. Um, so why did you make your main character a necromancer? Oh, so it actually came from the zombie side because I'm obsessed with zombies. I don't know where it came from. I don't know why it happened. I um, I have a fine collection of skulls in my house. Um, I mean, I, I worked in the coroner's office for some time. Maybe that's where it comes from. Oh, okay. That's cool. Yeah. When I was I was 15, I started answering the phone in the coroner's office because they always needed cover in the school holidays because all the secretaries went on holiday. And so I, I from late 15 to when I left home, I was answering the phone in the coroner's office. So I had this sort of quite youthful immersion into, um, into kind of, well, being obsessed with dead things. Um, and not once but twice I accidentally opened a, um, a, a file of photographs that was in the office thinking they were holiday snaps. You would think the first time would have actually taught me, but no, I did it twice. So, yeah. Um, yeah, don't do that. If you're ever actually answering the phone in the coroner's office and somebody leaves a packet of photographs next to you, just don't look at them. Coming to um, the books, because I was obsessed with zombies, I needed someone to raise my zombies. And I really wanted to write about zombies from a slightly different way. I wanted to explore undead who weren't just mindless brain eaters. I think part of the appeal of the zombie is that there is no thought. There is just strength and eternal stamina and rage and hunger. So you never have any moral quandaries about killing one of them or 10,000 of them. And I wanted to kind of subvert that. And as soon as that, I decided that zombies could remember their past, everything fell into place because I also wanted to write whodunits. So if I had a necromancer, she could raise the zombies from the dead and she could help solve their murders, which is actually far too simplistic because actually most of the time when I'm sculpting the books, I have to work out why people have absolutely no idea who murdered them. So I actually just made things very, very much harder for myself. In that, And at the end of the day, the protagonist's key role is as an amateur sleuth. So in a way, her necromancy is her USP that she brings to the table. So with Miss Marple, her USP is her sort of amazing perspicacity and her knowledge of human nature that she's sort of garnered from being this sort of expert on village life. And Sherlock Holmes has his amazing intellect and Columbo has this attention to tiny details that the murderer never thought of. And my Tony just, she can raise corpses. And so just as Sherlock's weakness was cocaine, my Tony's weakness is unsuitable hot men. You know, every sleuth should have an Achilles heel and hers is that she has terrible taste in romance and poor judgment and makes impulse decisions that normally end up with her under a duvet with someone she should have run away from. So, yeah, I mean, zombies obviously led us to sleeping with unsuitable men. It was as a natural progression. Oh, now I want to have a Miss Marple zombie story. <laughs> I'm sure there's got to be one out there on the net if you if you look. Uh, if not, I'll I'll write some. On oh, the- you, yeah, 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 totally, totally. Yeah, even <clears throat> just short stories. It'd be it would be a pleasure. <gasps> well, maybe we find somewhere we can see if we get an anthology together where everybody writes a, a Miss Marple zombie story because that'd be amazing. I'd totally write one of those. There's a gorgeous um, set of short story anthologies um, that was put together by Charles Prepolek called The Gaslight Grimoires, and I think there's four volumes of them, and they pitch Sherlock Holmes against supernatural forces. So I definitely think there's room for um, like a Miss Marple against 
you know, vampires and werewolves and ghosts. That I think that would work beautifully. Well, it's a very different angle, isn't it? Because Sherlock Holmes and and Doctor Watson, they're very. I don't, what's the word I'm looking for? Macho isn't quite the right word. They're very cerebral. There we are. Yes. Um, whereas Miss Marple is very much more intuitive. Yes. So I think that would make a very different kind of zombie and murder mystery one. Anyway, before we get dragged into Miss Marple and zombies, um, which is not ever a phrase I thought I would say, um, you said earlier on that you wanted to write zombies who weren't brain eaters um, and weren't sort of shambling wrecks and things. Now, obviously, in your... Um, in your books, we have Tony falling for humans, for vampires. Um, and yeah, I was going to give a spoiler away there, but I went. It's very tasteful and it's in book four. <laughs> you knew what I was going to ask. <laughs> whether there is going to be any zombie romance or whether that's just a step too far. But I'm guessing if it's in book four, it's not a step too far. It was a natural progression. And, you know, these zombies are not exactly festering, are they? they're not but i'm still okay, quite so intrigued some of them are festering yes it's very <laughs> tasteful and it's in book four excellent okay well you preempted me there <laughs> i can't remember his name off the top of my head but i do happen to absolutely love who i'm going to call her best friend um Breeden. yes thank you he's great love him <laughs> I love him too. And in fact, the book started off as a short story about Breeden. Um, and it just, I just kept going. So yeah, he was, he was, it was just going to be like, I don't know, 30 pages short story focused around him and being raised by, from the dead by Tony. And it just ensnared me and I just kept writing. And four and a half months later, I had book one. So I was like, okay, let's, let's, I know, let's write lots more. Okay, well, aside from my love of Breeden, um, <laughs> what is it that actually makes a difference between the paranormal romance and the standard romance? For example, are there any character traits or storylines or tropes that you get in a paranormal romance that you, you wouldn't get into like a, a I'm going to say in air quotes, uh, standard romance, whatever that means now? <laughs> Whatever that means. I mean, I think it's partly structural because there's this huge weight of world building that goes into writing paranormal or fantasy literature. So it's much better to write a series because you don't want to waste all that world building on one book. And classic romance doesn't fall well into a series formula because you typically want a happy ending at the end of the book. And how does that support a series structure? You can't just take it away from her at the beginning of the next book and then give it back to her and then do that on book three. You know, it's, it's you're kind of cheating your readers. You can't do that with a series. I mean, so writing a, a romance series isn't new, but you have to cheat. Um, you have to cheat in order to make it work for people who want to read a book and get some kind of happy ending. So some famous authors um, who've done that, well, they cheated in different ways. Um, classic one, because it was on TV not so very long ago, um, the Poldark series, which is written by Winston Graham. And he got around it by constantly introducing new couples so he could resolve their conundrum, conundrum in the next book. And so that's his way of cheating. Georgette Heyer, if you've read her stuff, she did it 
in um, a similar way, but she didn't even bother to make her books intersect. She just carefully built this Regency world, and then she wrote novels in it for about 50 volumes, each of which was a standalone romance. And there's a third route you can take, which is you can give your story a series arc and have the one happy ending right at the end. But that's harder because each book breaks the romance formula. It doesn't have a wrap-up, here we end, and they walk off into the sunset happy ending. You can give it what I've done. It She gets a little bit of happiness. None of the books has a miserable ending, but we are very clearly in a story arc. We're waiting for her happy ending in a major way, and I'm only ever giving her little drips of happiness. So that does allow me to make her fall in love with genuinely flawed characters, which you can't do in your standard romance book because they can only be superficially flawed or appear flawed when they're actually not, because otherwise she would be stuck forever with someone who's just like not the perfect guy. And the one thing you can't do in a romance book is cheat your reader of her ending up with the person who's perfect for her at the end. So you, you've got to you've got to cheat in different ways, and those are some of the ways that you can cheat, or you've got to just say, okay, I'm only going to write one book, I'm not going to write a series, and and you can do that too. But I basically am much too lazy to create an entire world and only write one book in it. Okay, I'm gonna have to ask. So you've <laughs> I said you. I was going to say I have already brought up um, <coughs> Tony's. Um, other happy endings uh, throughout the books, which, you know, I enjoy. Um, but I feel like with paranormal romance, there's an element of what some of us Star Trek fans like to question with the series because how is it that, you know, they go off and they meet all these aliens and they're just – their genitals are all really like perfectly fitting, etc. Now, okay, obviously with paranormal romance, it's usually things that are coming from humans like vampires and, and werewolves, but maybe they're, you know, these characters are into a bit of the, you know, the wolfy aspect of the, the werewolf or uh, as, as you know, you're just mentioning that there may be some uh, zombie love happening, you know, I mean, <laughs> what kind of um, things do you have to think about on the uh, sex front uh, when you're writing paranormal romances as opposed to more um, uh, realistic <laughs> in that sense, romance? You get a free run when you're writing anything uh, like that in any kind of fantasy universe because you don't have to play by the rules you can say we don't have to worry about contraception because vampires can't impregnate humans and and, the, and, and thus you've got rid of all the quandaries about safety that you would have to introduce if you were going to write a modern novel and then you can say well oh he never has any kind of fatigue or issues that way because he's a werewolf and Lo and behold, you've you know suddenly given your scenes license to last a lot longer than they might if you were trying to be more realistic, and so you you actually get lots of lots of free rides when you're, you're you're doing it in the fantasy world. You can throw away all these conventions and cautions that you would need, and you can you know have a lot of fun. You also, though, I think, have to bear in mind that 
there's a very specific audience for stuff that goes beyond the hot vanilla and the sort of people who would want to you know have alien anatomy differing substantially from human anatomy they're probably not going to be the majority of the people who'd be reading my books so they might actually be repulsed by that so i have kept all the sex in my books very positive very consensual very upbeat and astonishingly vanilla we were thinking about having sex with zombies and dead bodies but it occurs to me that vampires right, are... that's really vanilla yeah okay fair <laughs> enough point taken. but it occurs to me that the whole point is a vampire is a dead body so have romance writers over the years kind of skipped over that is this something you did where you kind of go you know what in some of the horror stuff you have they have like waxy skin and it's really cold and it would be like having sex with a, right. a slab of meat but in romance you don't tend to get that with vampires do you it's definitely more passionate and hot-blooded and things i mean is this something you thought about when you were writing did you go i'm gonna to have to make my vampires as human as possible and kind of step away from the more horror aspects of it to keep it vanilla Definitely, absolutely. Um, and if you've read even one of the books, you know that um, one of the hot vampires is obs- all of the vampires are obsessed with heat and they love being warm. So they will keep the rooms that they're in very warm and they will prefer to be in warm places. So their ambient temperature would be warmer. And I put that in because the idea of shagging something icy cold is, you know, well, certainly to me, unappealing. Um, as I say, there might be people who have specific and particular tastes who read my books, but I don't think they're going to be the majority. So, yeah, I very much wanted them to be as human and as attractive and as easy to relate to physically as possible when I was putting things together, because it's not that I didn't want to write a book that was a little bit kinky, but I didn't want to write a book that was so kinky that I was going to just put off a mainstream audience. So there's definitely a little bit of that going on. I have to say that the the cold vampire body thing is something that always haunted me during like the otherwise hot Buffy Spike hate sex scenes. Uh, like I could never quite forget <laughs> that. Like... Yes. James Masters is so hot. <laughs> oh my God, so hot. <laughs> so hot, but like... Oh right, yes. This I think Charlotte like put it like a cold slab of meat, and now like I can't get that out of my head. It's I'm horrible. So sorry. He, he did the voice. He did the audio books for all the Rivers of London series. Oh, did he? So mm. that, you were like, oh, did he? <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly, I have an urge to listen to these books. <laughs> I think I do, certainly. Yes, bed, bedtime stories for Megan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> me down. So Lucy did mention the hot Buffy spike sex. And for those of you Buffy fans will know the scene I'm talking about where they literally make a building fall down around them as they are going at it. Uh, which is oh god it's so hot and then the 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 sound effects yeah with like the zip on his pants coming down oh Do oh yeah know how many times i've watched that episode oh yeah i, I yeah. think i need to rewatch it <laughs> I, I think you do yeah um one who found it uncomfortable then 
Yes, clearly. <laughs> no, it's hot. It's very hot. I see. I shall go back and rewatch with new eyes. <laughs> anyway, I was getting to a point. <laughs> My point is that obviously, I mean, with Buffy, it's kind of different, but usually someone like Spike, a vampire, etc., is really, really strong um, and, you know, very physically strong. And then you also have that that common thing with like the the thrall that vampires can put you in their thrall. So obviously the vampires are stronger. They're in a much, you know, greater position of power. So it's kind of um, the kind of patriarchy taken to extreme in that the women are, you know, put a level below in terms of strength and, and power generally. I mean, how do you work out a relationship like that, when it is so one-sided and I will caveat this question with, I mean, okay, yes, the first one we see is Oscar who is a shit. So maybe you don't need to balance it and maybe you're commenting on that, but uh, yeah. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, it was very important to me writing the stories and I think it's emerging in the arc that she as a necromancer has powers herself and she has powers over some of the vampires and as she learns her powers and as they grow she becomes more powerful and even at the very start of book one the vampires can't hold her in thrall because she's the necromancer who has power over dead bodies and as you pointed out earlier vampires are dead bodies so whilst I want to keep the allure of the vampire as the sort of powerful slightly unknowable enigmatic creature it doesn't affect her in the same way. She isn't in their power in the same way. They they can't force her to do things. They don't have this instant attraction to her that they have to everyone else. She is kind of the exception to that. And that allows her to come at them on a much more level playing field that they don't expect. And, you know, I'm playing around with it in all of the books, but I play around with it increasingly as the series progresses, that they are so used to having power over humans, but they don't have power over necromancers, and they're actually scared of them. So she can actually not be just the damsel in awe or the damsel in distress who's um, rescued from the vampires. She can be a credible threat and a credible power in her own right. So I hope that that will give them a sort of slightly less misogynistic stance than your average vampire romance, because it's not that she has all the allure, but they have all the power. They both have power and they the allure is has to be on, you know, realistic terms rather than I will make you fall in love with me or my beauty is all I have. I think I've tried to make it something that is much more on a level pegging field, a level playing field than um, your typical, than your typical vampire romance. Thinking about the balance in a relationship, one of the things that always strikes me with um, romance series is how you manage to introduce more men and more sexual encounters into the books without avoiding the whole sex in the city scenario where a woman is just churning through men at an alarming rate. Um, and I mean, in your books, Tony doesn't have a strong, stable relationship that we see her working her way through. 
Um, she, but she also doesn't kind of just cast men off. So how did you go about striking a balance between going, you know what, Tony needs to have some fun adventures with different people, but at the same time, I've got to make sure that it's each relationship is tender and meaningful for her. Yes, she does have a lot of sex, but it's really very casual sex. She is looking for true love. And she, I think with every encounter that she has, she's like, maybe this is the one. But if it isn't, she doesn't go and live in a cave. I think in a way that's the biggest challenge of writing romance as a series with a single main protagonist. And it's a thing my agent and I talk about a lot because we want to get it right. And I suppose my decisions aren't going to work for every reader because some people want Sex and the City where she has a new shag every week and some people want her only to ever have eyes for her true love and I'm definitely something in between. I mean, I don't mind her churning through a few men, a few women, a few vampires, a few zombies. I mean, in fairness, all of those things do happen in the books. She she shags her way through all of those on her way to true love and happiness. And some people are going to hate that But yes, I do make all of her encounters positive for her and I make all of them positive for her partner. I made a decision very early on that if anybody has sex in any of my books, it was going to be extremely consensual and everyone was going to have an extremely good time and nobody was going to regret it. Um, But she's growing as a person and she does start off wanting this stereotypical single dimensional thing. She wants a handsome man in a wedding ring because that's what she thinks she ought to want. And she's already way past that in book three. You know, she's she's given that up as the basis for happiness. She's learning to think about herself from the perspective of what she wants, not what the world expects from her or what the world thinks she should want or thinks is appropriate. And I also think that I think the paranormal romance as a genre is plagued with angst and it's often quite rapey, whereas there are a lot of paranormal romance romance actually has rape in it that is sort of resolved as part of the story and I really didn't want to go there but yes she is she's pursuing a long game she's never losing her positivity she's never losing her confidence that there's someone perfect for her and in a way each time she comes out of a relationship she's found out more about what she wants and what she doesn't want so it's I think it's a very positive journey and there's a lot of sex happening on the way, but it's a very wholesome journey. She's not, you know, bitterly regretting this. No one, and she's not contemplating suicide because someone's left her life. It's, it's, it's a good thing. And yes, she's lost another lover and he wasn't the one or she wasn't the one, but she knows more about Tony and what she wants and the world's still her oyster and she's still, she's always getting up and going, okay, you know, what's around the next hill? I'm sure it's the sun. Um, So romance is quite a unique genre in that, like historically, a lot of books, uh, pretty much, you know, like you could argue every book um, has uh, featured a woman um, front and centre, you know, as as a protagonist. Um, but in older romances, the women, you know, they're, they're usually portrayed as weak, in peril, in need of men to save them. So how prevalent is this trope in modern paranormal romance? And how difficult is it to strike a balance between a woman realising that she needs a particular man in her life, uh, but without her becoming a damsel in distress, which we hate? 
It's so hard. It's so endemic. I mean, you talked about it being an older romances, but I we're making such slow progress in 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 moving it off the standard storybook. I mean, I have to fight against it myself, and I still find I'm doing it. I it stems, I know, from sort of the history that until really very recently, a woman had no good, good good options in her life that didn't involve getting married. So there's always that journey. You know, that there couldn't be a happy ending without a wedding to a man who's ideally rich and strong and handsome. And we're still stuck in that's the way a romance book works, even though it doesn't have to anymore. And the problem with being brainwashed is you don't know you've been brainwashed. So we still automatically can default to that as romance when we just don't have to. I mean, I mentioned Georgette Hare earlier. Uh, every single book of hers ends with a happy marriage where the man is rich and the woman, no matter how no matter how special she might be within herself, is nothing without him. She has no prospects, no hope. She she needs a man to complete him. And the only thing in the book is that she happens to find the one that she wants. I think it is easier in a way to avoid it in the paranormal universe because you can always structure your world to be less hardwired, to be one where men give and women receive. You can give your female protagonist, as I mentioned I have, you can give her healthy expectations and self-esteem. You don't have to make her a poor, virtuous orphan whose only hope of redemption is a handsome prince. And talking of Cinderella, who's you know always a popular story to, to cite as the classic romance, I do wish everyone in the world would watch the Czech Christmas version of Cinderella. I think it translates as three gifts for Cinderella or three nuts for Cinderella. My family is Czech, so we watch this every Christmas. It's not optional. And in this book, Cinderella rides a great big black stallion that no one else can ride. She shoots with a giant wooden bow and she runs the prince ragged. And he falls in love with her because she challenges him as an equal on every front rather than just sucking up to him. And this film was made in the 60s and we still have so far to come for the the classic um, romance to to sort of embrace that and nail it. But I, I, I am trying. I am trying and it's worked because we're so brainwashed for to have to need a woman to be saved in our romance books. I, I really want her doctor need to be saved and we're so used to the woman having to have a protector or a leader and I really didn't want that in a way right from the start she doesn't give that away on every front because she's the necromancer her brother isn't the necromancer he's the policeman and he has to come running to her when he wants a murder solved so I mean I'm trying from the base up not to make the woman just need things from men at every stage I want the men to need things from the women as well and I think that you need to be quite bloody minded about it because otherwise you just slip back into this trope where the woman is always a damsel and the man is always a hero and that's not really fair on the men either I don't think they want to be heroes all the time and I'm really trying to to do it in a fun way not to just to do it I must she must never be rescued because I'm a feminist you know she can be rescued 
she can be rescued now and then, but she has to also rescue herself. She can't always just wait for someone to come and pull her out of the pit. She's got to be working out how to climb the walls herself. You know, she can be a damsel in distress in chapter four and she can be an Avenger angel in chapter eight. I think you don't have to make it all the other side just because making it all one side was just getting dismally boring. I really like this idea of the Czech Cinderella because what is it about Cinderella that clearly has this um, ability to accommodate uh, a you know a, a different like a flip side of the of the whole hero damsel narrative because one of my favorite films is Ever After because it's like the best comfort film ever and I love the fact that actually the what the character who changes most in that film is the prince his character arc is immense and it's totally down to her. Oh, I love that film. I, in the bit you're talking about where she, it's like you can take whatever you can carry and she picks the prince up. Oh, so it. great. But I think what I also like about that is that when she does that, the response of the gypsies is to then welcome them in and go, you know what, that's smart enough for us. We we like that. You, you're one of us now. And I think that as much as, you know, everything else. And like you say, the, the prince's character, up, he's like, I'm going to build a school. And his father's like, right. Yeah. What have you done with my son? <laughs> I love that film. Yeah, it's really clever. Clearly, like Cinderella has this, um, you know, has space. Well, I mean, I think all of them. I think all of the fairy tales where where we complain about damsels probably do have space for the women to grow. But because of the dominant narrative, which I like to bang on about all the time, um, we just haven't seen these types of stories. Well, I wanted to wrap up our conversation by just asking about something I touched on in the introduction, which is that despite its huge popularity and, and how many books are sold every month, romance as a genre often attracts criticism. Um, I mean, I know plenty of, of stories of writing instructors going, we're not going to teach fantasy or romance because they don't count as proper writing things. Um, so I wondered, Alice, why you think it is that romance in particular comes in for such criticism what is it about the genre in general that makes people go really snobby about it they get so snobby don't they oh romance they do. they do i think there's a sort of literary snobby and snobbery in it first off because you know a novel can challenge you it can educate you it can reassure you it can amuse you it can devastate you you know we we read fiction for different reasons and sometimes you want that Traditional romance has a happy ending that's predicated on successful love. So it's a novel that will uplift you. It's a novel that will leave you happy, make you happy. And why we're being so snobby about that when many of Shakespeare's plays are classic romances with classic happy endings. I mean, you know, it really isn't fair. And yet, aside the, ha the happy ending gets sneered at. We're not allowed to have a happy ending. It's got to be sad or conflicted or twisted or challenging. You know, you don't give the book a prize to a beach read. You just don't. It's got to be darker. It's got to be less feel good. I mean, I think it's also because in recent history, romance was written for and read by women. That's a little bit less the case today, but in fairness, it's still a prevailing trend. And that takes it out of what the establishment has been interested in because publishing has typically been just as male-dominated as any other industry in the past. I mean, I said look at the Booker, which is a relatively recent award compared to many, but I looked up the numbers earlier. Since 1969, when it started, 36 men and 18 women have won it. That makes it way better than the Nobels, 
or the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, if you're interested, for that matter. But it's still dismal, isn't it? It's still twice, you know, it's it's still 100% more men than women. And there's always the concept of easy reading, which means that different people make different things to different people, but it means that they're almost looking down on a book that doesn't challenge you as a reader. They're looking around on a book that doesn't have the potential to make you miserable. And I think that's particularly sad because, you know, we're allowed a feel-good snack. We're allowed a feel-good pair of slippers. We're allowed a feel-good holiday. But they don't always have to be challenging us. Why can't we have a feel-good book? You know, where the bad times aren't that bad and they don't endure all that long, where you don't have so much endless suffering, but maybe just some mild sadness. It's, you know, we call sometimes cause it cosy fantasy rather than fantasy with lots of head severings and piles of, I don't know, dismembered corpses. But why wouldn't you want that? What's wrong with wanting to read things that make you just feel happy. I mean, some people might want to curl up in the bath with a face pack and a glass of Prosecco and two entire Toblerones. And I'm not talking about myself, obviously. But, you know, are you going to top that with volume one of War and Peace? Or are you going to top that with Legends and Lattes or Pride and Prejudice? You know, I, I, I think some people would indeed choose War and Peace, but I think those people would benefit from therapy and they should have another glass of Prosecco and perhaps three Toblerones. I think three Toblerones is probably enough to kill anyone. Well, I'm thinking of the big Toblerones. I was going to say, don't forget the little ones. Yeah, the little ones. Yeah, right. They're just bath bath size. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Alice. It has been absolutely great fun to talk about sex with vampires and zombies in all their different forms, um, and Toblerones and Miss Marple and all sorts of things. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's been amazing. Um, Thank you so much for setting this up. And I'm going to go and serve some food to a starving teenager who's not a teenager anymore and tell her everything we talked about. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.